0: Well, good morning to each one. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to see each one of you here this morning. I, too, want to welcome the visitors. We're glad you're here and invite you to join in and worship the Lord with us this morning. Today, I want to continue our study on the doctrine of non resistance. For those of you who were not here for my first sermon on non resistance, Some time ago, the Selective Service Committee made a suggestion that a sermon on non-resistance in daily life would be preached in each church throughout the conference. So I have agreed to take this assignment for our church here at Ebenezer. And as I thought on this assignment, I had to think, to be a non-resistant people in daily life, we must first be convinced That the doctrine of non-resistance is a true bible teaching and so with that in mind i thought we would first look at the basis for the doctrine of non-resistance and get that clear in our minds before we look at the practical outworking of this doctrine so today my title is new testament principles for non-resistance new testament principles for non-resistance. For a text I've chosen 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We'll come back to this verse later in the message for the benefit of those who did not hear the first message, I will begin by sharing a short review. In my first message that was titled, Old Testament Foundations for Non-Resistance, we looked at four points, and I'll share those briefly at this at this time. But we looked at four points. Number one, the sovereignty of God. We looked at Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in Daniel 4, after Nebuchadnezzar as a beast in the field, he spoke highly of God and his sovereignty. It says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are true, and his ways, judgments, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Understanding that God is sovereign in all his ways is the first step in understanding the doctrine of non-resistance. And the second point was the sanctity of human life. Human life is sacred because it bears the likeness of God. We looked at the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, which forbids murder. This commandment did not forbid killing in God-directed Old Testament warfare. However, God has never given man the freedom to randomly murder others. The consequences for doing so were painfully high. We looked at the example of Cain, of Moses, and David. They all All three of those paid a high price for killing others. The third point that we considered was warfare in the Old Testament. Israel was a civil nation. We noticed that neither the Old or the New Testament makes non-resistance a civil ethic or a civil requirement. Non-resistance is a doctrine that finds expression in the Church of Jesus Christ. We also looked at the seriousness of Old Testament warfare. When God gave the Old Testament saints the command to kill, they were expected to follow that command to the letter of the law. We looked at several examples of men who choose to do otherwise and how God held them accountable for their actions. And then the fourth and final point from several weeks ago was non-resistance typified in the Old Testament. proverbs twenty five twenty one and twenty two If thine enemy hunger, I'm sorry, if thine enemy be hungry. Give him bread to eat, and if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. There are several interesting accounts in the Old Testament where we see New Testament non-resistance typified. We have the story of Isaac digging the wells. Another is Joseph forgiving his brothers. And we also looked at the tribe of Levi who were a special tribe of God's own, even among the Jews. The Levites did not go to war. They cared for the things of the tabernacle, and so on. And so today we want to continue our study with New Testament principles for non-resistance. Again, this morning I have four points that I want to consider. And the first point is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, understanding that God is sovereign in all his ways is the first step in understanding the doctrine of non resistance. And following on the heels of understanding that God is sovereign is understanding the lordship of Jesus Christ. We began this study in the Old Testament and we noted first that God the Father is sovereign, He's before all things. Greater than all things and over all things. In the Old Testament covenant, God revealed his law on Mount Sinai to the nation Israel, and immediately to them came the task of living by and enforcing the law. And so we look back at the civil nation of Israel with its warfare and judicial system as a proper response to the justice of God revealed in the law. In the New Testament, however, we have the re- we have the revelation of God taking on a dimension beyond that given in the law. God reveals himself in Jesus Christ as the God of infinite mercy. The revelation of mercy came by Jesus Christ. John one seventeen says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You know, men could never have known God as the God of mercy or such infinite mercy without the revelation of the law. Galatians 3 verse 24 says, wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, God did show mercy in the Old Testament times. However, the law revealed most clearly God's justice. And Jesus Christ revealed most clearly God's mercy. And so, the two cannot be separated. By the justice of God, we see the infancy of his mercy. By his great sacrifice of love, we see the immutability of his justice and God, as revealed in Jesus Christ, mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 85, verse 10. And so, just as the people under the old covenant reflected the revelation of God by the law, so under the new covenant, God's people reflect the revelation of God. By Jesus Christ the Old Testament Saints operated by justice as the civil nation of Israel today under the New Covenant we operate by mercy and love as the Church of Jesus Christ Old Testament warfare commanded by God was a window by which God dis- disclosed something about himself by it all nations knew that the God of Israel was a God of justice and the God who hates sin. Today, non resistance, also commanded by God, is a window by which he shows us is a window by which he shows us more of who he is. By it man knows the God of mercy and the God who loves the sinner. Understanding the transition between the revelation of the law and the revelation of Jesus Christ is so important. You know, many Christians in our world are so confused on this issue. Many church-going people in our community and in the world believe in the revelation of Jesus Christ. They celebrate Christmas. They sing, Peace on Earth, Goodwill Toward Men. They celebrate Easter, our risen savior, and yet they still hold on to parts of the revelation of the law. They are very involved in politics. They support going to war. They remind us that King David was a man of war. The Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart, they tell us, and you know that's so true. He was a man after God's own heart. And under the revelation of the law, he did exactly what God expected him to do. You know, even the disciples struggled with the transition. John 14, verse 1 struck me in a new way recently. And often when we think of John 14, we think of words of comfort and so forth. And that's so true. But, uh, When I was thinking of this whole thing of transition between the law, the revelation of the law, and the revelation of Jesus Christ, this verse struck me in a new way. John 14, verse 1, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. You see, the disciples, they were caught right in the middle. They believed in God who revealed himself through the Old Testament law. Now Jesus is saying, he's saying, believe also in me. Believe also in me. And Jesus goes on to share all that is available to those who believe on him. The many mansions, the comforter, peace that he promised to leave. Let's look at some scripture that confirms The Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Hebrews one. I'd like to read Hebrews one, one through three. And I want you to notice verse two as we think of Jesus and his lordship under the new covenant. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, see that's the old covenant, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I believe that's very clear. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Thinking again of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, I'd like to read... 13 through18. let's see Matthew 16:13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, "Whom do man say that I, the Son of man, am?" And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and other Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I find this account very interesting. You know, Peter made that statement, and I don't think he even knew why he said what he said. And even Jesus pointed that out. He said, That didn't come from you, Peter. Peter. And I've often wondered if later in life Peter thought back to those words and he was like, you know, now I understand what I said many years ago. Let's go to um, Colossians chapter 1. I'd like to read some from Colossians 1, 12 through 18. Again, thinking of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, it's so important that that we understand that, and if we don't, non-resistance will not make sense. Colossians 1, verse 12, and notice, I want to read through 18, notice 17 through 18, 17 and 18 in particular, Colossians 1:12. giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. That's where we're at this morning. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones. Or dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And I'm going to start over. And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. I had to think of the song, The Lord is King, O praise his name. Where all the earth his grace proclaim, from age to age, from day to day, his wonders grow more gloriously. And he is the head of the body, the church. Well, let's go to the next point and think of non-resistance in the gospels, thinking about what Jesus said. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll read 38 through 48. Matthew 5:38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Old Covenant, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, New Covenant, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the public can sow? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. Well, we notice right off that Jesus points out the old before he institutes the new. Ye have heard that it hath been said. Notice the action words in verse 44. I guess they're action words. I'm not a school teacher, but I assume they're action words. I'm not sure I was going to ask my wife to make sure they are action words before I said that, but anyhow, I said it now. So I'll assume they're action words. But I say unto you, love your enemies. That sounds like action to me. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. You know, the doctrine of non-resistance is not passive. It's not passive. It's a doctrine of operative love. Jesus is saying, those who ill-treat you, smite you, take your possessions, sue you, and otherwise despitefully use you are to receive your love. And, And I can only... Imagine the thoughts of this old covenant crowd. I mean, that's who's listening to this. This is an old covenant crowd. And they're thinking, how can this happen? How can this happen? Bless them? I mean, how could a righteous Israelite bless a Roman soldier? Do good to them? How could an Israelite in good conscience do good with sincerity to those who cursed And hated and persecuted the righteous. Pray for them? How could a true Jew pray for his enemies in any other way than the way David prayed? You know, David prayed, he said, I hate them with a perfect hatred. That's how David prayed for his enemies. You can, I just can imagine them. How can this be possible? How can this be possible? Well there is only one way for this to be possible and that is by becoming a child of the father revealed in his son Jesus Christ and that is the only way it's through the cross Colossians 1 verse 20 says and having made peace and having made peace how through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. So, that's what Jesus said. But that's only a small part of what Jesus said. There's more. And we could go on and on and on having sermons on non-resistance. But we've got to move on to the next point. And that is non-resistance in the early church. The non... I'm sorry. The early church started out solely on the teachings of Jesus. That's all they had. They had Old Testament scripture. They had Old Testament law. They had some prophecy concerning Christ. They had that. And they had the words of Jesus that's all they had the new testament wasn't written until many years later or several years later the church was in operation for many years before the uh the books that we appreciate and love acts through revelation were written The apostles went forth with a message to repent and be baptized. The early church believers lived by one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Jesus was the center of the early church. That's all they had. They had Jesus Christ and his words. When Jesus spoke of men becoming His his disciples, He spoke of leaving all and and taking up the cross. After Christ's death, the reality of taking up the cross became plain. The early believers purposed upon their confession of faith to identify in the suffering and shame for the one who died for their sins. In doing so, they became the offscoring of humanity. And if ever an age proved the power of the cross, the age of the early cross, the early church surely did. They were harassed and tormented, they grew. They were chased and scattered, they increased. Persecuted and killed, they multiplied. The blood that flowed from the non-resistant Christ through the veins of the church, and the more it spilled, the more people came to its cleansing. It has been said that there is no practice of the early church that we can point to that was more responsible for the rapid growth than the willingness to identify with the cross of Jesus Christ, and I believe that's true. Let's look at some early church writings. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read what Peter has to say about this. 1 Peter 2, I'd like to read 18 through 25. 1 Peter two eighteen, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward For this is thankworthy If a man for conscience towards God endure grief Suffer wrongfully For what glory is it If when ye be buffeted for your faults Ye shall take it patiently But if when ye do well and suffer for it ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Whom, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray. But are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Peter here is pointing to Christ and how Christ suffered. And he's saying here that Christ suffered for us and left us an an example that we should follow his steps. The Apostle Paul taught in wording almost parallel to Jesus' words of blessing enemies, of doing good to those who hate, of avenging not, and of rejoicing in tribulation. And so let's let's read some of Paul's writings in Romans twelve, fourteen through twenty one. Romans 12, verse 14. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. It's interesting that these words are coming from a man who previously made havoc and slaughter. As a Pharisee under the Old Testament, Paul or his name was Saul at that time, felt fully justified in using force to accomplish right. After Paul's conversion, he laid aside the weapons of men. He taught against them and preached the message of the cross. The Apostle Paul's change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant was marked by his exchange of the sword for the cross the Apostle Paul faithfully taught non-resistance to the Jews and Gentiles alike, first with the example of Christ and then second by his own example of putting down his own personal sword and taking up the cross of Jesus Christ. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That is what the New Testament. That is what the early church taught. Not only did they teach it, but they also practiced it. They practiced that. And Stephen, you know, I think of Stephen, that first early church martyr that we know of. You know, that thing of him being stoned to death and him saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was a brand new practice. I mean, (laughs) He was the first. Up to that time, they didn't pray that when they were getting slaughtered by their enemies. They prayed for the judgment of God upon them. All right, separation of church and state. That's my fourth point. Our our Anabaptist forefathers believed in a separation of church and state. They understood that the two-kingdom concept that Jesus spoke of, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Jesus, in the discussion with Pilate before his death, said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom, not from hence. You see the early Anabaptists they understood that they understood the two kingdom concept, and they paid the price for that they many of them died for that years ago, I saw a bumper sticker that I've never forgotten. And it said, last time we mixed politics with religion, people got burned at the stake. And I'm not sure what all that person had in mind with that bumper sticker, that's the only one I've ever seen like that. But last time we mixed politics with religion, people got burned at the stake. And I think that individual understood the danger of mixing the two. Now we hear religion mixed into politics all the time. That's nothing new. But we know from history and also from observing current world events that when the church and the government join forces, people will die. People will die. The teaching of the New Testament concerning the church, distinguish it as a separate from the kingdom of this world. And again, here is where there is much confusion in Christianity today. You know, we have neighbors, we have close friends that encourage us to vote and to be involved in politics, and we have a close friend and neighbor that, that is encouraging us in that way, and he tells us that we need to get good people into the government, and on and on he goes. Let's read what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Actually, Peter is writing, and he's inspired by God. So this is actually God writing to us through the, through Peter. But 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And I'd actually brought this verse out um, the last time I preached about the New Testament principles. Um but I'll read it again, pointing out a different side of it. First Peter 2, 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar or purchased people, that ye might show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, the church is the body of Jesus Christ. It's the bride of Christ. A brotherhood united by allegiance to his lordship. The church is directly under Christ. So that Christ's wishes are the church delight. Christ's life and character is the standard by which we live our lives. Understanding separation of church and state. So what can a non-resistant Christian do for his government? What can we do for our government? We just don't have enough time to go to hit everything this morning, so we'll just go to Romans 13 and read 1 through 7. I had more that I wanted to read, but uh, I'll just... Like Nathan said, you'll have to do your homework and, and uh, dig into it a little more. But Romans 13, verse 1, I'll read 1 through 7. What can a non resistant Christian do for his government? Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, is evil be afraid for he beareth not the sword in vain for he is the minister of god a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath but also for conscience sake for for this cause pay ye tribute also for they are god's ministers attending continually upon this very thing What can we do for our government? Verse 7. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. You noticed, I'm sure, the different things that we can do for our government. As non-resistant people. And you know, people... Do not get elected to government office by chance. You know, God allowed Obama to be president of the United States. God uses the government to fulfill his will in this world. They are his ministers or servants. And you know, the last time I preached, I talked about Nebuchadnezzar and how it says in Jeremiah that he was God's servant. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was a, a uh, Babylonian king. And, uh, but yet God used him and called him his servant. He used him to accomplish his purposes in the world. And so God uses men today, ungodly men. He calls them his servants. You know, I find it interesting. I find it interesting that many patriotic people these same people in our community that are encouraging us to support politics, they're, support, they're encouraging us to support war. These same patriotic people, they often fall short when it comes to honoring and obeying the government of our country. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that? You know, it is our responsibility as a non-resistant Christian to respect, honor, and obey our government. That is our duty. And, you know, my conscience was smitten as I studied this. You know, over the past seven years, I found the the fried chicken jokes and the watermelon jokes that are directed towards Obama, you know, I found them humorous. But in light of what we read here and in light of what God is saying about these government officials being his servants and his ministers. You know, is it really right for me as a non-resistant person to think jokes like that are funny, and worse yet, to pass them on? It's just something that I thought about. New Testament principles for non-resistance. I'd like to just recap with uh, with just parts of of verses from the New Testament that bring out the principle for non-resistance. I'll just read through these. But Matthew 5.39, resist not evil. Matthew 5.44, love your enemies. Matthew 5.44, do good to them that hate you. Romans twelve nineteen, avenge not yourselves. Matthew five thirty nine, whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Matthew five forty, and if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Romans twelve eighteen, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Matthew twenty-six fifty-two: All they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Second Corinthians ten verse four: The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Romans twelve twenty-one: Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Second Timothy two twenty-four: And the servant of the Lord must not strive. You know, after a study. Such as this, we may wonder. So, what do Christians have to protect themselves from evil? You know, a study like this makes us feel somewhat vulnerable. You know, what are the Christians' weapons that are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds? You know, that could be a, a subject, that could be a sermon within itself, but we do have the promises of God in his word we have the promises of God that he will take care of us we have the words of Jesus that his father sees the little sparrow fall and i believe that is enough you know sometimes when a when there's a discussion on non-resistance we we get into these discussions of of what if you know what if this Or what if this happens? Or what if that happens? You know, how can we respond? And, you know, those discussions usually um, maybe bring more confusion than they do help. But we can focus on the promises of God. The promises of God in his word. You see, non-resistance is an act of faith. We are trusting in a power to protect us that we cannot see. Trust in the promises of God by faith. In closing, the call to avenge not is a high calling. It really is. It's a calling to be like Jesus. Just like the old gospel song, be like Jesus. This my song, in the home and in the throne. Be like Jesus all day long, I would be like Jesus. That's what the doctrine of non-resistance is all about. It's like being like Jesus, following His example. I'd like to close with two verses from First Thessalonians 5, First Thessalonians 5:23 and 24, "And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless, blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. We'll call for a closing psalm.